Last week we, we, began the, we began to look at the difficult subject of miracles and the transition from Egypt to the uh, Sinai experience. Let's, let's put ourselves back in the context of that discussion and see if we can, see if we can take it a little bit further. So the context is like this. Let me revise for you one or two of the points of that discussion to see if we can set the scene. The, uh, very briefly, the Rambai Maimonides says that anyone who believes because of signs and wonders, because of miracles, is problematic. Right? That means belief by virtue of having seen a miracle is not ideal. The language the Rambam uses says, Yesh beliboi doifi. Yesh belibo dofi. Dofi means a, a, an impure taste. It's not a... There's something not pure or complete when a person is believing in prophecy, or in that particular case he's talking about prophecy, or the pro- prophecy of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. But generally we could say belief in Hashem, in God. Belief that is, that is achieved by inference or deduction because you saw something that controverts nature is impressive, but it's not, not complete. And he says why? He says because when you see a miracle, you could reason that it was performed by means that are, by various means, he says, Latvikishuv. Latvikishuv means, means, um, Lat means the use of certain spiritual energies or beings, let's say. And Kishuv means what in English we translate as sorcery. I mean, these words are very misleading and inadequate or misleading in English. But, um, but nevertheless, there are these energies or forces that uh, could be the explanation for what you saw that appeared to be miraculous. And therefore, instead of believing in Hashem, instead of relating to God Himself, to Hashem, you might say that these things were performed by some sort of energy or some sort of intervention. And therefore, because that possibility is open, although, of course, you may not, you may say this miracle demonstrates that there's a master of, of all that transpires. But you may not, you may say that this is done through some other, through some other means. And therefore, the Ramam goes on to say that the miracles that occurred in the Exodus, now again, let's focus carefully, the miracles that occurred during the Exodus were done for reasons other than proving the veracity of the experience or proving that Hashem exists. Right? The Ramam says, for example, he's quite clear about it, he says that the reasons that those miracles took place is because each one was necessary. For example... He says, he says that uh, the reason that the miracles were done was because each one had a need. For example, we, were, we needed food, so the manna came down, man came down. Or the, the sea, we needed to escape the Egyptians to be, to be trapped, so the sea split. And it, right? Or uh, we needed water, so the rock was split and water came out. But lefiat sorech asan, that's what he says. Each one was done because there was a specific need. Do not think that the miracles were there to prove... What lies behind it, right? That's what he says. The Ramban uses virtually the same language also in his, in his commentary on Chumash, and he says that exactly the same thing. He says that, that if a person sees miracles, 
then he might say that these were done by agencies other than the source itself and that is problematic. And therefore, and therefore, when we stood at Sinai, that possibility was closed. When we moved on from that phase of open miracles that were demonstrated in the Exodus from Egypt, and we stood at Sinai, which was a personal direct revelation, that means we didn't see miracles that proved to us that something else exists, but we saw, we had, we experienced a direct, intimate, personal bond. After such a revelation, there's no more possibility of this this doubt situation. Because then, then the, Ramba, the Rambam's language is that that, that is manifestation. She'en achareha machshava v'hirur. There's no, in English you say second thoughts. You can't, there's no second thoughts. Maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't. Once we had our own personal experience. And the Ramban goes on to say that because of that, we've carried with us throughout history this experience of Sinai. And not only that, what does it mean throughout history? It means that our children have this direct experience. And this is a very problematic thing to understand, but the Ramban says, because we've told our children, and all, each generation has told the next one, therefore, throughout Jewish history, Jew, Jewish children, Jews will know that we stood at Sinai, and they will know it, he seems to suggest, as securely as those who stood there. And uh, he explains, the Ramban says, because we don't give over an inheritance of lies to our children. Why is it that children believe the whole story of Exodus and Sinai, says the Ramban, because people don't give over lies to their children, and the children therefore will trust, and he says they will believe, <coughs> they'll have no doubt, that this was our experience, and they will know it forever, that's what he says. In fact, he goes on to say that if a false prophet arises, and says that you now must change your way of life, and, uh, and uh, changes one of the mitzvahs, and even if he performs a sign that appears miraculous, he says, we will know that he's false. Right? We, will, we will know the lies that he's perpetrating and if necessary, he'll be put to death according to Torah law. And that is because we will have no doubt since we had our own personal experience. Now, this leaves us with a number of questions. <coughs> I think last week we began to explore them. Let's try and summarize the problems. First of all, <coughs> first of all, if the, uh, again, focus with me carefully. If the experience, this is Pesach, right? Next week, you're going to have to know this. The Pesach Seder, you have to have what to say at the table, children, say to yourself, your family. This is what we have to talk about. It's the Pesach Seder where the most intense experience of Jewish handing over the tradition, right? That's the handing, the most intense experience in the Jewish family of handing over the tradition that the Raman talks about, that we stood at Sinai, we went out of Egypt, we stood at Sinai. And each generation of Jews knows it as intensely as the former one, as the previous one. This is where it happens. There's an electricity that... that, that that is generated at the Pesach Seder, where, where this thing is transmitted. There's nothing, very, very few things more important than that. So let's see if we can plumb its depths. The first question is, if you argue that the signs and wonders of the Exodus, the miracles that occurred in Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the Exodus, are inadequate as proof, they're inadequate as proof, because you could always second-guess them and say they were done through certain kinds of energies, the question we faced with is, right, but how come the Egyptians were supposed to believe? The Egyptians, they never stood at Sinai, right? That was a Jewish experience. We stood at Sinai. The Egyptians did not stand at Sinai. So if you mean to tell me that what they were exposed to, the Egyptians in Egypt, they saw these signs, miracles, wonders, etc. And later you tell me that that's actually inadequate as a proof. Then what about the poor Egyptians who were supposed to believe? On the contrary, the Torah says explicitly in many different ways that the, reasons that the, the reason that the miracles were performed in Egypt was so that they would know. Yeah, are we together? 
That means there was a purpose here of demonstrating Hashem's power and His presence, His presence and His power. And in fact, the Ramban says that the purpose of the miracles was to demonstrate all the fundamentals of Jewish belief. And in fact, he lists them. You see from the Exodus, you see Hashem's existence, you see His power over nature, you see that He knows what's happening, you see reward and punishment, that those who deserve are redeemed, those who don't are punished. You see all the fundamentals of Jewish belief. He enumerates them. So if you're supposed to use that experience to come to believe, then, then, then it must be adequate. Because if the challenge is for the Egyptians to believe, and not only that, the Egyptians did believe. When it was all said and done, all the miracles took place. All the plagues that happened, and all the plagues happened in miraculous fashion. The Egyptians clearly recognized what was happening. Right? In fact, they were big experts in light and kishof, the Egyptians. Big experts in sorcery and witchcraft and magic. They saw clearly what was happening. Well then, what's, what's happening here? Is the, uh, is the experience of the Exodus, are those miracles adequate to establish what we want to establish, Hashem's existence and His power? If they're adequate, and we see that they were adequate, because they were designed to be adequate, so that the Egyptians would understand, and in fact they were successful, because the Egyptians did see, certainly we saw, then why do you need Sinai? Why do you need the personal experience of standing at Sinai, if the precursor events, which were miraculous, were enough of a proof? And if you told me that they weren't enough of a proof, then how do you expect the Egyptians to recognize it? Are we, are we together? You know, the whole discussion of the leaving of Egypt is miracles. You have to understand what they, you can't avoid it. You might feel as a modern individual that, you know, miracles feel a little uncomfortable because you never saw any of those. You have to understand, this is where we're based. In fact, on the contrary, the Rambam says, remarkably, that the mitzvah of the Pesach said is to talk about the miracles. You know that? He doesn't say, he does not even say that there's a mitzvah, a commandment, to talk about the Exodus. You know that amazing thing? If you look up the Rambam's language, when he delineates the mitzvah, the commandment, to tell about the Exodus, which is what the Pesach Seder is, one of the two mitzvot doraita, that means the two Torah mitzvahs on this night. You know, on the Pesach Seder night, there are two Torah mitzvahs, telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt and... <laughs> eating matzah. Eating matzah, right? The two Torah mitzvahs. The wine is a rabbinic mitzvah. The bitter herbs are rabbinic mitzvah, right? Saying halal is rabbinic. But the two mitzvahs that are Torah mitzvahs are Sipu Yitzis Mitzrayim, telling the story of the going out of Egypt, and eating matzah. There's actually a third one, which is the Pesach Korban, the sacrifice, which we don't have today. But the two that we do have are those. So, Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, telling the story of going out of Egypt. So, the Rambam's language is like this. Mitzvah, says, it's a mitzvah to tell, listen to his language, L'saper, to tell, Benissim Veniflos, about the miracles and wonders that took place to our forefathers in Egypt. He doesn't even mention going out. He, and how does he know it? He says, because the verse says, remember this day that you went out of Egypt. So the verse in the Torah says openly that what you have to remember is going out. And the Rambam's translation of the practical application of that verse is talk about miracles. He doesn't even mention going out. What's going on? Obviously the Rambam understands that our obligation is primarily to talk about the fact that it was miraculous. The way you tell your children about the fact that we were slaves in Egypt, we went out, is that it happened in a miraculous fashion. Even it's very extreme, this. It comes out according to the Rambam, that if you get, if you sit down at the Pesach Seder, you tell your children, we were slaves in a strange land, and eventually we were freed, and moved to the desert, and became an independent people in our own land, you've not fulfilled the mitzvah. Because if all you tell is the geopolitical story, you know, the sociological, historical, geographic story, so that's not who we are. And it's readily understandable, because that's not who we are. Every other nation is that. Every other nation is a story of, of, of you know, achieving national existence and identity and perhaps independence for as long as it lasted for any other nation. But that's not who we are. The geopolitical events that led us to our becoming who we are is not the issue. The issue for us is that it was miraculous. That's the issue. 
We live on another plane. You know, <coughs> one of the best ways to demonstrate this, as Sosema says, is that the whole, if the mitzvah of, of this night is to sit down and talk about miracles, the definition of a miracle is that which breaks the natural order. Right? The word for, the word for order in Hebrew is seder, an order. That which breaks the natural order is a miracle. This night consists of talking about that which breaks the natural order, and we've got the chutzpah to call it a seder. A Pesach seder means, do you know what a seder means? That which proceeds according to an order. It's perfectly ordered. And what is the subject matter of, of this order? Com- where everything's completely chaotic, inside out, upside down, nothing natural at all. And we call that a Seder. It says the Svasem is very deep. That's our Seder. The Jewish people's order is the miraculous. When things are happening according to what the world calls order, we're uncomfortable because that, that hides the reality. But when the world breaks its rules and everything explodes and the hidden hand behind the scenes is revealed and nothing natural at all is occurring, occurring we call that natural. That's our Seder. Then we feel happy. And on this night, which is not natural at all, different from all other nights, a night of revelation of miracles, nothing normal at all, we call it a Seder. Then the Jew feels comfortable. We sit down. That is our natural... So it's essential here to understand these miracles. So let's get, let's get a little more deeply into it. Let's get a little more deeply into it. First of all, if those miracles were inadequate to prove, then how come the Egyptians saw it? And how come it was designed? And furthermore, if you tell me that we stood at Sinai to have a personal experience, again, stay with me carefully. First of all, one of the questions that's obvious is, the Ramban says after that there's no doubt at all, and in the same breath he says that your children will have no doubt. And that is patently absurd. We see that children do have doubts. Again, we live in a very disconnected generation. So what is the Ramban telling me? That if you sit at the Pesach Seder and you tell your children, all the way throughout history, no one will have any doubt. The children will believe what the parents say. Why? Because they know that parents don't give an inheritance of lies to their children and have no fear throughout Jewish history, there will be no doubt. That is, that is patently naive. I mean, what does the Ramban mean? He means, what, what does he mean? You know how many Jews are disconnected and don't even know about this today? In the last few years, surveys have shown that more than 50%, more than 50%, of American Jews, for example, have no attachment to any... They don't even know that it's an issue. I'm not talking people who've rejected and they're skeptical people who don't even know that there's an issue to be known. No identification at all. <laughs> and the Ramban comes along and tells me, there'll be no doubt, please shum sofek, he says, without any vadai, they will certainly know. What does that mean? <coughs> and how do you put in the same breath those who stood at Sinai, they had their own personal experience, and those who were told generation after generation? Surely they're different orders of clarity. Furthermore, furthermore, if the unclear proof is Egypt, because it's all by inference, you see a miracle, so you infer that Hashem exists, and Sinai is where it's absolutely clear, how come all of Judaism is based on going out of Egypt? You know that, all of Judaism is based on Yetzias Mitzrayim. We say, Zeicha Yetzias Mitzrayim. You, you, what don't we talk about Shabbos, right? Shabbat. You stand on Shabbos, you make Kiddush. You know what Shabbos is? Shabbos is a celebration of the creation. It's going back to the fact that the whole world is created by Hashem. And how do we define this God who created the world? Zeche Letzias Mitzrayim, who took us out of Egypt. Why is that important? The creation of the world, I can understand. Giving Torah at Sinai, where I experienced it myself. Why? You know, the Kuzari, you know, the Kuzari was a, an Asian, Russian or Asian king who interrogated ministers of a number of religions. He had a very interesting dialogue with a certain rabbi. In the end, his whole nation turned out to, they converted eventually to Judaism. But during his conversation with the rabbi, he's searching very famous workers of Kuzari, in which the foundations of Judaism are philosophically explored. He says to the rabbi, who is this God that you talk about? The rabbi does not say to him, he's the God who created the world. He doesn't even say he's the God who met us at Sinai. He said he's the God who took us out of Egypt. But again, why is that the central issue? If you tell me that it's inadequate and it's only indirect, 
And then we had a direct experience at Sinai. So what are you going to tell me? Well, it's a necessary precursor. But who on earth relates to the precursor when you have the real thing? Let's say you met someone once. How did you meet them? Because you got, a, you, know, you got some message. And then there was a phone call and telegrams and letters. And eventually you met the person who eventually got married. For the rest of your life, do you remember the relationship, the nature of the relationship, by the fact that somebody once wrote you a letter? When you have the real experience? Sinai is called a marriage. Yom Chasunoso, it means the day when we married Hashem. The mountain held over us was like a chuppah. There's many, many customs that we do at a chuppah today that are reminiscent of the Sinai experience. It's our marriage. So what sort of personal relationship is this when all you can express about the relationship is where it began in an indirect fashion? Surely the main issue is the... Not only that, what's even more perplexing, which beyond all, all, all understanding, is when we arrived at Sinai and we met Hashem face to face. No miracles, no intermediaries, direct personal experience. Once in history... How did he introduce himself? Anoichi Hashem, the first of the Ten Commandments. Anoichi Hashem Elokecho, I am the Lord your God. Asher who took you out of Egypt. Why is that relevant? He's introducing himself. He doesn't say, I am he. You now experience me face to face. This is it. No, no, I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. What's the focus there for? These, these questions, we need, to, we need to think about these. So let's try and build it slowly. Right? These are some of the issues we began to grapple with last week, right? Yes, we did. <laughs> the Ramban says that the reason we talk about the miracles is because in a famous piece, is uh, one of the last few words that he appends to his, that he goes into in his commentary on Pasha's boy, the Ramban says... <coughs> that the purpose of the miracles is to teach you that there's no such thing as nature. He does not say it's there to prove God's existence, although that is one of the fundamentals that you do infer. But he says that the reason that we experience miracles in Egypt is to show you that there's no such thing as nature. Because when you see a miracle, the curtain is pulled aside. You see the hand behind the scenes. When the curtain again descends, then you know that all of nature actually is predicated upon something deeper that you now have witnessed. And he says, his language is, Mina nisim hagedolim from the great and revealed miracles, other makirvi, a person recognizes, that the hidden miracles, what we call nature, there's no such thing as nature or any natural event in the world. That's what you conclude. And he goes on to say very sharply and very classically, he says that a person has no share in the Torah. He's used those words. He says that there's no share in the Torah of Moshe, Torah of Moses, until a person knows and believes personally that all that applies to the Jewish people shall be called Dvarenu Umikrenu. That means all our events and phenomena, all that occurs, Ein Bahem Teva There's no such thing as nature or happenstance or natural workings of the world. In other words, you want to be a Jew, you want to have a share in Torah, you have to know, recognize and know that there's no such thing as nature. You want to have a share in the Torah, you have to know that everything that appears to be natural is actually guided by the same hand that's as miraculous as an open miracle. That's what you have to know. Where do you know that from? Because you saw miracles. That's what he says. So let's try and put it all together. And the reason that there are misconceptions here and the reason that these questions arise is because, as we try to explain, people have the wrong concept. People have the concept that what's going on here is a series of proofs. That the whole exercise here is to prove that God exists and He is who He is supposed to be. And therefore the way it goes is we left Egypt and we saw evidence of his existence by virtue of miracles. What kind of proof is that? Inadequate. 
percent, 60%, 90%, 99%, but it's not a clinching absolute proof. And therefore, you're up at Sinai, and there's no denying that. But a question's obvious then. I mean, if that's the final proof, then our questions all come back. Why do you need the half proof in the... Be- the concept here is completely mistaken. This is not an exercise in proof. Okay, and the most beautiful way to express it, I think I quoted it last week, and I'll say it again. There's no better way to say it than that, as Rav Shabiru said it. This is not a question of the intensity of the proof. It's a question of the quality of the knowledge. Okay, you blaze that sentence into your consciousness because... That says it all. This is not a question of intensity of proofs. We're not talking about inadequate proofs in Egypt and adequate proofs later. That's not the discussion. What happened in Egypt was adequate. You don't have to be Jewish for that. You can be an Egyptian, skeptical, you can be whatever you want to, but this is the finger of God. That's what they said. Sinai was not a better proof. At least it may have been, but it's not there for that. The difference is that experience in Egypt was an experience of indirect, ex- in indirect experience by deduction or inference. And what happened at Sinai was a personal experience because that's who we are as Jews. We live in the consciousness of a personal experience. We once met him face to face and that blazed into our awareness, into our consciousness and still runs in our veins. The atmosphere, the, the intensity, the electricity of that, personal, of that personal experience. That's who we are. That's not for non-Jews. It's not for non-Jews. A non-Jew can have access to Hashem's existence through witnessing that they're miracles or he can see that nature doesn't make sense. Nature is, is, is incredible in its complexity. It's incredibly unlikely, virtually impossible, if not impossible, that this whole world that you see is all chaotic accident. Even, even today, you read modern physics. There are no more eloquent testimonies. You don't find any more religious statements. I can, you can hardly concoct a more religious way of looking at the world than modern physics is coming up with because the the level of order in the complexity it is so extreme right, that they talk in explicitly religious terms. Any human being, Jew, non-Jew, you can have access to that and you can conclude that behind the scenes there's something moving. But you don't see him directly. For that you need to stand at Sinai. That's what a Jew is. A Jew is not somebody who comes to believe. Obviously you have to have that. But by what method you come to that knowledge, whether it's inference, deduction, conclusion... That's fine, that's, and that's all part of a logical process that is necessary, but what makes you who you are, and what burns in our consciousness, and what means that our children understand what they understand, is because what we're handing down is not a conclusion that we once arrived at, but an experience that we once had personally. That's what's called a chuta it's a completely different quality of knowledge. That's what Sinai did. Now we need to discuss... What was the purpose of the miracles? If we're gonna, let's ask the question again, with this knowledge in mind. Again, let's think it through. So we stood at Sinai, we had a personal experience, right? That experience was so intense that it lasted for many centuries. Jews were tortured and burned and, and, and not, underwent every possible atrocity. Not for longer than any other people, because we're still around. We've been here longer than any other people. Why? Just because we were Jewish? How we withstood that? Because of the intensity that this experience generated. Right? Until very recently, relatively recently. So then, if that is the <coughs> intensity of the experience, and that's the definitive experience, then again, why do we need the, the miracles? So the Ramban teaches us. The Ramban says, not because it proves anything, but because it does prove something. It proves that nature is miraculous. Now we have to ask ourselves, why is that more important than the personal experience? Why is it more important? Why is the whole Torah predicated upon going out of Egypt, which was miraculous, when you have a, a better experience than that, which is a personal experience? And the answer seems to be, that the purpose of being here for a Jew 
is not to live in a Sinai dimension of being raised above the world. Sinai was completely superhuman. We had no free will at that moment. We were raised above the world in a way that was completely transcendent. That's not what Jewish life is. Jewish life is knowing that nature is miraculous. Not knowing that that which is openly miraculous is miraculous. That's not where we live. The skill of Jewish living is, be able to, is being able to engage in a natural existence and knowing that it's every bit as holy and elevated and transcendent as when you stood at Sinai. You know, when you go back into nature, you have to take Sinai with you. The language of the Ramban is, you know, there are six things you have to remember every day. Six mitzvahs, that means there are six things that you have, six zakhiris, six conscious, that means things you have to remind yourself of all the time, Right? Going out of Egypt, standing at Sinai, Amalek, Miriam, uh, Shabbos, right? What happened in the desert? Six things you have to remember. The Ramban says, it's very interesting to note, the Ramban says that that mitzvah, which was given at Sinai, at the giving of the Torah, remember this day that you stood here at Sinai, says the Ramban is a positive mitzvah, actually a negative, positive and negative mitzvah. Right? What's fascinating is the language of that commandment is different than all the others. All the others, all the other five say remember, that you should remember. This one says don't forget. It's phrased, don't forget. Guard yourself very well, lest you forget this experience of standing at Sinai. You know the difference is between a commandment to remember and a commandment not to forget? A very obvious difference. A commandment to remember something means that you won't right now thinking about it, I have to order you to remember it. But a commandment not to forget means I anticipate and expect that you were thinking about it right now, but don't forget. That means that all the other six things, a Jew, whatever you're busy with in your daily life, you have to remind yourself to remember. But Sinai, you should never have forgotten. The only danger is don't move your eyes. The Ramban's language is Beautiful expression. That our eyes and our heart have to be there all the days. That means that's where you live. You as a Jew, you live on Sinai. But you know how you live there? You live with your natural existence at a Sinai dimension. That's what you have to do. Climbing Mount Sinai, standing there, in a rarefied atmosphere of the divine, that's wonderful and it's essential. But that's not where we stop. We go down into the world, and we take that, and we invest the physical world, which is mitzvahs. You know that all the mitzvot are physical actions. Virtually all the mitzvahs. Virtually all the mitzvahs are not done with the mind, they're done with the body. Which means, engaging in physicality, and elevating the physicality to a spirituality. That's the Jewish skill. Both the Rambam and the Ramban, <coughs> they both explain that virtually all the mitzvahs are based on going out of Egypt. Not Sinai, they were given at Sinai. But they're based on the experience of going out of Egypt, right? Even the Rambam, for example, even lists in his list, he includes in his list the mezuzah. The mezuzah, in the text of a mezuzah, is not even mentioned going out of Egypt. Not even mentioned. And yet he says it's based on the fact that we went out of Egypt. You know what it means? That you need to see the miracles, engage those, see the hidden hand that moves them, move to Sinai, have a personal, marital, intimate experience, as it, as it were. You relate to Hashem, you bond that into you, and then you go down from Sinai, back into the world, and you start engaging the world and, and, and elevating it, its content. You know, the, the Kotzke Rebbe says an amazing thing, beautiful thing, amazing thing. You know, after Sinai, when we stood at Sinai, you know, men and women had to separate. Husbands and wives had to separate for three days before the Sinai experience. Now, in order to reach the purity <coughs> that was required for, the, for that revelation, husbands and wives separated for three days. Then they reached the Sinai experience. After the intensity of that moment, the next words in the Torah, the next words that we received, Hashem said, God said to Moses, Go and tell them, Go back to your tents. After you've gathered around the mountain, received the Torah, you now go back to your tents. Going back to your tents is a Torah way of saying, husbands back to their wives. 
Because the tent, the place of dwelling in Torah language, is always called a wife. Wife is called a home. It means that now the marital connection, the normal marital life, returns. So that's normally understood as being that there was a prohibition on that level of activity. Husbands and wives separated. After Sinai, that was relaxed. And you go back to the normal. Says the Kotzkarebi, that's not what's meant. This was not a permission to go back to normal life. This was a commandment to go back to normal life. What it means is that after you reach Sinai and you stand at that incredibly elevated level and you see all the... Then you go back into the levels of physicality and you take this with you. Now, this is not a heter, what we call a permission to go back to normality. This is a commandment to go back to a normality that will never be normal again. Because after you've stood here and you've got to this level and you've, you've achieved that marital relationship, that means... Hashem and us have become one you now go back into the world with all its sensuality and all its physicality and all its, all its tangible material levels and you invest those with what happened at Sinai that's where we live we don't live at Sinai we live in the miracles of the Exodus yeah learning you know there are many things that come out of this one of the things that comes out of this is that the miracles which are the engaging in physicality the mitzvahs, the mitzvahs which are an engaging in physicality and elevating, do you know what it means? It means that the world is a program, is a process, it's a, it's a work under construction. That's what the world is. That's what the world is. You know, let's understand. If you had not had the Torah and all its mitzvahs based on, predicated on, going out of Egypt, where you saw that nature, in fact, is miraculous, and that's where you operate with your mitzvahs, you know what you might have thought? You might have said, well... Why do we perform the mitzvahs? Because we were commanded at Sinai, right? Now, in order to perform the mitzvahs, you need a world. So the world is here, as what we call a hechatimsa, that means the world is here as an opportunity, a stage in which to operate to perform your mitzvahs. But this duality between Sinai and going out of Egypt teaches you something very different. The world is not an environment in which you perform your mitzvahs. The world is the substrate and the material and the framework of the mitzvahs. The world is not a place in which you perform your commandments, your mitzvahs. The world is a program under construction. The world is being built by these mitzvahs. You engage every aspect of the world. You're not living in a place that happens to be a framework or an environment that gives you an opportunity to do what you have to do. You're living in a place that is being constructed by your actions. That's what a mitzvah is. Mitzvah means that you take every... Do you know a mitzvah relates to every part of the body? For each part of the body, there's a mitzvah. And for each part of the world, there's a corresponding... Yeah, part of the body corresponding mitzvah. Every time you do a mitzvah, you sanctify that part of your body and the corresponding part of the physical world. That's what a mitzvah is. It's an elevating... It's a, it's, it's, it's a having come to understand what the world is, what nature means transcended that at Sinai and go back into the world and cause every element of it to be elevated. That's, what, that's the program. That is the program. Did we speak last week about the Zohar? About light? And light being faith? Very briefly, very briefly, the Zohar says that the Ten Commandments, we spoke about the sequencing of the commandments, Good. The Zohar says that the first of the sayings of creation is not in the beginning, but rather let there be light. And the conclusion it draws is that the let there be light, which is the first statement, corresponds to the first of the Ten Commandments, which is Amir Hashem al Because light, says the Zohar, is Emona's faith. Which means, which means that just like all knowledge of the world is only what light provides, in other words, a revelation, the world is nothing other than a Ginoi revelation, all human knowledge is through the medium of Emunah. That means, that means that the level of, of certainty you can have about the world is only within the context of what is revealed to you of the world. To put it another way, 
You can't know anything with certainty. can't know anything with certainty. All you can know is what you perceive as the revelation of that thing. When the Ramban says that we stood at Sinai, we came to know it with certainty, and our children will know it with certainty, he means the kind of certainty that you have about your knowledge of the world, and that's not proven. That's not proven. You can't prove, and I think we said last week, you can't prove that the sun will rise tomorrow. You can't prove those things. But you live by them as a working assumption. And what the work of faith is, is to get to a level of knowledge of something that transcends physicality as certain as you are of those physical facts. Absolute proof in the technical mathematical sense the Ramban himself says is not possible. And therefore what he means, you hand it over to your children, and I think the example we gave last week is just like you know you're Jewish, which is very far from proven. Very far from proven. Lots and lots of things could have happened to you and your family 400, 500, 600 years ago that you couldn't possibly be aware of. The fact that you're Jewish today rests on a very strong assumption. That's all. Why? Because your parents didn't give you over a lie. And the assumption is their parents didn't give them a lie. That's what it means. Well, what does it mean, after all, that you're Jewish because your parents told you? It means that somebody stood at Sinai. That's what it means. You're expected to know that you met God face to face once in as secure ways you know that you're Jewish. In fact, that's what it means. Let's try to look this evening a little bit more systematically at the question of miracles. Okay? Let's try and put our heads into that. If we say that the purpose of going out of Egypt and what we tell over at the Seder is the fact that what appears to be in nature is in fact miraculous, that's what we learnt. Yeah, let's put our heads into the difficult subject of what miracles are. Let's see if we can systematize that and formalize it to some extent. Again, have we got our heads clear? You, yeah, we st- we're sitting at the Pesach Seder now. We're telling over the story of the Exodus. We're not bothering to tell about the geopolitical historical event. Of course we say that, but we emphasize the fact that this happened miraculously. Now, the miracles have to be understood. You know, every miracle isn't only miraculous in that it breaks nature, but it teaches a message too. The fact that water turns to blood, that has a deep meaning. Again, there are a lot of ways to impress. You can impress a people by showing them that nature, in fact, is not natural, by doing all sorts of impossible acts. You have to understand, when Hashem demonstrates a miracle, He's teaching something specific. When Egypt is laid low, Egypt is destroyed by ten miracles in sequence. Each of those blows, each of those plagues, makos, is an act, it's a blow which knocks out part of the contamination of Egypt, but it does it in a miraculous fashion. You know, there are a lot of ways to knock out a country. If the Jews were meant to be extracted from Egypt, and for that, the power of the Egyptians had to be broken, you can have also, you know, cholera epidemics, you can have all sorts of destructive things that are miraculous. Why do ten events happen, each of which knocks out another level of Egyptian experience and power, and happens to be miraculous, and why that particular miracle? So again, we don't have time now to work through all of them, but I mean, you look up, for example, in the Maharal, just one, one classic source, the Maharal in the Sefer Agvurois, in Nun Zayn, or Nun Ches, there, 57, 58, he says there, for example, and the Zohar, again, is a basis in different ways, the tracing here of the ten sayings of creation through the ten plagues to the ten commandments, right? They're all obviously parallel. Right? According to our Talmud, our Gemara, the parallel is that the first of the plagues, the first of the sayings of creation is in the beginning, the last of the plagues, which is a, cure, a curative or detoxifying, if you like. Again, the Egyptians had contaminated all layers of reality. 
And so the plagues come to purify all of reality. And they, that's why they proceed in an order. If you start with the inside in creation, you start at the outside in terms of purification, right? And therefore the first of the sayings is in the beginning. The tenth of the plagues is destruction of firstborn, which is a correction of a problematic firstness, right? First and first. And of course the corresponding one of the Ten Commandments is the first of them, which is the point of departure, as it were, I am Hashem. And of course the way they phrased is exactly parallel. In the beginning, is phrased not as a statement like the others, let there be, let there be light, etc., but simply in the beginning. The first of the Ten Commandments is not you shall or you shall not like the other commandments, but simply a statement, I am. Now, you see there's both. And the reason, of course, is parallel. The first saying of creation cannot be, let there be, because you can't give any instruction until there is existence. You can't, no, nobody can instruct anyone else to build anything until there is a something. And therefore the first saying of creation is, is nothing other than in the beginning. The first of the commandments, you cannot phrase a command until there's a relationship between the one who commands and the one who's commanded. You know, until he is and I am, he cannot command me. So the first is not thou shalt believe in me, but I am Hashem. Parallel. And of course, that's why the tenth of the plagues, destruction of the firstborn, was performed by no intermediary. Just like Hashem is all there is in the first moment of creation. And just like Hashem is all there is in Anuch Hashem HaKecho, similarly, the tenth of the plagues is Aniva Loi Malach. We said it at the Seder, right? I am no angel. I am no intermediary. I alone. Parallel all the way through. And it goes, as you follow through, the second is, let there be light. The second last of the plagues, darkness, correction of the mistake of light that the Egyptians had made and the second of the statements of the Ten Commandments you shall have no other gods before me the ultimate darkness the ultimate extinguishing of the light of truth and reality in the world etc etc I mean it's painfully obvious so these miracles that occurred in Egypt you have to understand that they were done with the purpose of demonstrating not just that Egypt is not the power that it appears to be, but that there's an underlying reality which is the correct version of reality, and therefore each miracle is carefully crafted to teach that thing. So let's look a little formally this evening at the structure of Nisim of miracles. That's what this whole month is about. Nisan is Nisim. And of course that's what, that's what Yitzhak Mitzrayim is like the Ramam tells us. Okay, slowly in sequence. There are a number of levels of mace, okay, of miracle. You know what nace means? The word nace, you know, we always learn from the words themselves, right? Nace means a number of things. One of its meanings is that which is miraculous. But it also means to uplift. Right? Uplift. The word nace technically means a banner or a flag. Because when you have mundane territory where you cannot see clearly, and then a banner, standard is raised, the flag is raised, there's a clear rallying point of where the center is. So a nace, a miracle, yeah, that's what it does. Because when you see nature which lulls you into habitual, into familiarity, so you don't see the essence, is when a miracle happens, you're shocked into realization. Of course, the miracle is no more wonderful than nature itself. Nature itself is stupendous, completely mind-blowing, stupendous beyond all description. You should be so enthused and so amazed by anything natural that a miracle shouldn't do, <coughs> shouldn't amaze you anymore. But the truth is that because you're familiar with the natural, so you don't think it's that marvelous. You say, well, of course it's like that. I mean, you know, it's, that's how it is, you know. It's only when you're given a sharp insight that you... Uh, so w what a miracle does is, by virtue of its unfamiliarity, it sensitizes you. And therefore it's like a banner raised. 
says, you have given your servant a banner by which to uplift or be uplifted. Right? Like a banner on the hill. High thing on a high place. That's what it means. Now this, these, this thing called a miracle has a number of layers. The lowest order of the physical manifestation in the world is what we call nature. Teva. One above that is what we call a nice nister, right? A Jew has to understand miracles. Pesach, we're going to talk about miracles, you have to understand. What I'd like to demonstrate for you this evening, as far as possible, is the order inherent in miracles. Okay? That's what Seder is, like we said. Let's see if we can take miracles which break the order, and this evening let's try and put them into a Seder. Can we do that? That's the Jewish classification. We're now going to classify that which is impossible. Right? So like this. The first level is called a nice nister. Nice nister means a hidden miracle. A hidden miracle. What's a hidden miracle? It means a miracle where no law of nature, so-called law of nature, is broken, but only something so unconventional, something unusual, so unusual happens. In English you call this a coincidence. It's a coincidence. That means two things happen which statistically, probability-wise, are so unlikely that they should happen together, right? But... Since they happen together, they sensitize you. You know, I have to say, I mean, just before we go here, I'm going to say it would be a, a, a tragic omission not to say. <coughs> you have to understand, you don't need any of this. <coughs> because examining nature objectively, nature itself is so obviously... All you have to do, you know, you probably think I'm, I'm raving, but... <laughs> you know, don't take it from me. Read any of the modern... There's a lot of books coming out now that describe the findings of modern physics. And they, they are so stupendously... One of the well-known problems in logic, for example, I mean, we spent all night talking about this. Do you know that no one understands probability? Do you know probabilistic events are completely beyond understanding? No, no one can understand how... What does it mean, a probability? That, that, that when you do certain events, they've got a 50-50 probability. How, does it, how, does, how do things work out that if you keep doing it? What's the explanation of a, te- of a probability? That means... You know that in philosophy it's been demonstrated that you cannot break probability down to anything more basic. If you try to do that, you keep getting back to this thing called a propensity, a probability. No one understands how that works. There's no, there's no basic explanation for why there should be a 50-50 distribution, right, of a thing that has a 50-50. But the more you go into nature, I mean, did we discuss last week the problem of light going through a glass? Did we discuss that? No. I mean, the real place to look at this is in quantum mechanics. Because it is so... I'm not going to do it. I'm just going <laughs> to... But you know, quantum mechanics has turned out to be so bizarre. So completely bizarre. You know, Einstein... Einstein said that... If it turns out to be that way... He said he refused to believe that... You know, the theory when quantum mechanics was put forward in the first part of the century... Einstein was part of, part of the discussion, obviously. And he and a few others... Einstein, Podolsky and Rosen, for example... They came up with a couple of... They came up with some thought exercises what they call thought experiments, that would demonstrate, that if, you, that if you could do these experiments, that would demonstrate that quantum mechanics is wrong. Because quantum mechanics is so bizarre that Einstein refused to believe that it could be that way. In fact, Einstein said, if it will happen this way, this is what he calls spookhaftig. You know what spook, this German word, you know what spookhaftig means? Spooky. <laughs> spooky, that's what he said. If things turn out, and the world, the world is not a spooky place. So Einstein proposed some experiments, and he died in 1955. In the subsequent years, particularly in the 1980s, they were performed, and they are spooky. They are spooky. They, they, things, you know, 
We get carried away if I speak about it. But there are experiments that are done in modern physics today where spooky things happen that nobody... When Richard Feynman began his famous series of lectures, if there's a Jewish Nobel Prize winner, there's a brilliant lectures in the nature of, of these things. And you should read his books because they are aimed at a layman. You don't need to be a mathematician or a physicist, right? Read, for example, The Character of Physical Law. A brilliant book. Or a book called Quantum Electrodynamics, which is not technical at all, in which he explains these phenomena. Richard Feynman began his series of lectures like, he, he said this, he said, well, what I'm about to explain to you, you will, have, you will not understand at all. He said, but don't worry about it, because none of us do either. <laughs> and he, he proceeded to explain why no one understands modern physics, because, the, because self-contradictory events are taking place. But I want to point out to you that an acute observation of nature, you don't need to be a quantum mechanical, a theoretical physicist, or just an... A, a, let me give you an example. Can, can I... Yeah. Before we get to miracles, I just want to show you how miraculous nature is, okay? Just, I'll allow myself just one example. If this doesn't change you forever, there's no hope for you, okay? <laughs> Newton, 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 1700s, long before quantum mechanics. Newton noticed that the world is spooky. You know how he noticed? Newton noticed that if you shine light through a sheet of glass, that that's not a quantum mechanical, you don't need to be a... Yeah, just light and a piece of glass, that's all. You know what happens when you take a sheet of glass and you shine light through? About 96% of the light goes through and about 4% is reflected. Have you ever noticed if you take a sheet of glass and you hold it up in a lighted environment, you can see through it, but you also see a faint reflection. You must have noticed that. The reason is because 96% of the light gets through and about 4% bounces back and that gives you your reflection. So Newton, being the mind that he was, being the genius that he was, Newton said, how does 96% of the light know to get through and 4% know to bounce back? Now, how does the light do that? How, does the, how do the photons agree that, that, that this percentage will go through and that percentage will, go, will, will bounce back? How, how does it do that? So Newton said, well, obviously, now think, think through with, yeah, think you, apply your detective mind here. Newton said, obviously, light must consist of 96% of one type of light that penetrates and 4% that is bouncy. Makes sense, right? It's a reasonable explanation, isn't it? He immediately disproved that. You know what he did? Can you think of how you disproved that? Well, I'm sure you've already thought of the answer. You know what he did? He put another sheet of glass behind the first one and 96% of that light went through and 4% bounced back. In other words, if you want to tell me, you want to say, well, this 96% is the kind that goes through. Well, one second, take another sheet of glass and expose only that 96% of the light to it, and you know what happens? Only 96% of it goes through. Then you put another sheet of glass behind that, and you deal only with the light that has gone through and gone through again, and you know what happens? 96% of it goes through and 4%. So Newton said, just one moment. How does whatever amount of light you shine, after no matter how many pieces of glass, how does it always cooperate? How do the photons in that light beam, how do they all cooperate so that they know... So Newton said, you know what? Glass must be holy. Holes. Glass must have holes. Glass must have 96% holes and 4% non-holes. <laughs> Reasonable, right? <laughs> so he immediately disproved that. You know what he did? He polished the glass finer and finer. Until he satisfied himself that, and it made no difference. And nobody understands that. Do you know that? Do you know that? We're not talking about quantum mechanics. Actually, the reason the, the, the modern explanation for it is on a quantum mechanical level. But the point is that ordinary light sh shining through an ordinary piece of glass is spooky. <coughs> you have to somehow say that the light... That, isn't that remarkable? You start reading, you know, this material, 
you, you actually shouldn't read too much because it will take away your free will so thoroughly. <laughs> and we're not looking for that, right? We want a little bit of effort here, you know, in the faith dimension. And therefore, when you start reading about mod- modern quantum mechanics, you will, you know... You, you so, these are some of the... Uh, these are some of the... You know the famous two-slit experiment? Did we speak about that last week? You know, if you send light through two slits, you get an interference pattern. But if you observe, if you put a detector that can tell you which slit the photons go through, it refuses to cooperate. You don't get interference anymore. You know that? The light knows if it's being watched. I'm not kidding you. Today they've done experiments where they observe which slit the light went through after it's gone through and it doesn't play ball. Do you know that? After it's happened already, you get no interference. The photons know that they're being watched. And if you watch them, they don't cooperate. Then they, then they have a normal distribution. But if you, if you take away the, the, the detectors, then you get an interference pattern. And you can do it even if you send one photon at a time. How does the light know that you're watching? <laughs> of course, we have a Kabbalistic explanation. We know that reality is only what the observer is involved in. We know that. The world is only what appears to the observer. We know that. The world is a gallery. That's all it is. That's why it means the world is based on light. Our concept of the world is not that it's real at all, but it's what's revealed to you, that's all. It doesn't have a meaning until it's revealed. That's exactly what they're saying. Anyway, that's nature. Now let's get to the next level that is called a hidden miracle. A hidden miracle is that which is an unlikely coincidence. But no law of nature so-called is broken, right? The example I always give is, if you're running and you run off the edge of a cliff, and you, what's the difference between a hidden miracle and a revealed miracle where a law of nature is broken? A hidden miracle is where you run off the edge of a cliff and you catch onto a little twig and you're dangling over 5,000 sp- feet of empty space with jagged rocks at the bottom. And you know that a few seconds later this thing's going to pull out of the cliff face and you're going to become part of the scenery. So what happens is, as you, think that th- as you feel this little twig pull itself out of the cliff, it just so happens that there's somebody standing on the top of the cliff practicing throwing ropes over the edges of cliffs <laughs> that day. And you grab onto the rope and he pulls you up. Now that is what you call a hidden... That's a coincidence. There's nothing impossible about that. There's nothing impossible about that. But you would respond in a... You know, you'd probably be... You'd probably get pretty religious after that, at least, at least for, the next, for the next day or two, because that is so unlikely. But if you're very, very skeptical, you could say... Well, look, once every billion years, there will be the confluence of two events like that. I mean, it's not impossible, you know. That's what you'll say. That's the second class of miracles. That's called nascent And in fact, the principle is in our generation, that's all we see. From the time of prophecy ending, <coughs> and subsequently, we don't see revealed miracles anymore. We see only the hidden ones. But a revealed miracle would be where a so-called law of nature is controverted. For example, if you ran off the edge of a cliff, and you held onto a twig, and as it pulled out of the cliff face, you levitated back up and floated back onto the cliff. Now, after that, you'll be religious for at least a week, because what, what you have witnessed now is not an unlikely coincidence of two events, but a so-called law of nature has been broken. Okay, that's called a revealed miracle, nes nigle, a revealed miracle. We don't see those. The Rambam writes that for those types of miracles to occur, you need a prophet to be present. Okay, and we do not have prophets anymore. In fact, uh, Gemara is quite clear about that. There are only vestiges, shards, broken shards vestiges of prophecy in places like dogs and children and insane people. But coherent, coherent, meaningful prophecy we don't, we don't have. And you need prophecy of that order of, of clarity in order to, for a revealed miracle to be, to be manifest, right? Now, 
Therefore, in our generation, the last 2,000 odd years, we see only miracles that are this coincidental type. It is true that in the Talmudic phase, and theoretically even later, revealed miracles do appear. The Talmud, for example, is full of miracles, <coughs> long after the prophetic phase. And they fit into a completely different category. Right? The Talmud. The Talmud is full of miracles that are much more... You know, reviving the dead, for example. Right? Reviving the dead is a major event when it happens in Tanakh. <coughs> Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, revived how many dead people? Just one. Elisha, how many? Two. One. Two. Right? Remarkable thing. In the Talmud, reviving the dead is no problem at all. The Talmud has many examples of Talmudic sages, way below the generation of prophecy, reviving people at will. So we'll need to understand, and the Talmud has miracles that, revi- that, that uh, um, contest, let's say, what do you say, they are, they, um, that um, would seem to be as wonderful as the miracles that we find in scriptural sources. And if there's time, I don't know about this evening, sometime we'll have to talk about that class of miracles too. But that is the second order of miracles which is called the Neisnigle, where law of nature is broken. Actually, according to the philosophy of science, and again, this is a long discussion, the two are not really different. They're only different in perception. Do you know that a law of nature is also only a description of a frequency? Do you know that? Again, you see, we have the wrong concept. We think a law of nature means a thing must happen. Gravity doesn't mean, the theory of gravity doesn't mean that things must fall. The theory of gravity, strictly speaking, only means that when we observe objects when dropped, they tend to fall, fall down. So we phrase a law, which is called the law of gravity, right? Objects, when dropped, fall down. Then we come up with a theoretical explanation called the force of gravity. But you have to understand that a strict, a strict, um, strictly speaking, a scientist does not regard the law of gravity as meaning that things must fall down. Are you clear about this? It's only a description of a frequency. A, a, an, an honest scientist applying the rules of science, if he dropped an object once which fell up, okay, would not, strictly speaking, be shocked. He would rephrase the law of gravity. He would say that objects, when dropped, usually fall down, and occasionally and uh, uh, anomalously fall up. And there's plenty of things like that in science, right? Liquids, when cooled, for example. Liquids, when cooled from their boiling point down to their freezing point, contract. Except for water, which from 4 degrees down to 0 expands. So what do they call it in science? They call it the anomalous expansion of water. And then they come up with a crystal lattice theory that explains why instead of contracting it begins to expand. But science doesn't presuppose, science observes. Is is the point clear? And therefore if occasionally something floated up instead of falling down, so then that would be the... Which means that a miracle, strictly speaking, when a law of nature is broken, is simply, really, only the change in the frequency of an observed phenomenon. The sea normally looks horizontal. Once in history, the sea split and stood vertical. No? In fact, on the contrary, we have a total principle that when a sea was created, a condition was made with it that it would one day stand vertical. And some Farshim say, that's exactly why when they crossed through the sea, Moshe had to put out his hand or his staff to bring the sea back to its horizontal state, just like he had to put it out to get it vertical. The problem is, if you want to make the sea split, so you do an action, right? You put your hand out, you put your... So the sea splits. Once you get through and you're safely out, the sea should automatically return to its natural state. After all, that's its natural state. Why do you have to do another action? But the reason is because it's, deeply speaking, it's just as wonderful horizontal as it was vertical. And therefore, that needs to be brought into existence too. But the fact remains that despite, despite the idea 
that a law of nature is only an observed frequency, we respond to it very differently. Because when we see a thing that has gone according to the natural so-called predictable laws, when we see something break those laws, we're impressed, we're shocked, we're reawakened, we're sensitized, because it is unusual. Right? That's the second order miracle. Now there's a third level of miracle which is harder to explain. Now, stay with me carefully. And this is where we come to the Exodus. You have ability? You have concentration? Yeah. In revealed miracles, there are two classes. In revealed miracles, there are two classes. You know, when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses meets Hashem, when Hashem appears to him at the bush, and he tells him that there will be an exodus, you will be the redeemer, you go down to Egypt, you speak to Pharaoh, you speak to the Jewish people, you take them out of Egypt. He says to him, Vashmi Hashem, he says, I spoke to your forefathers, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I appeared to them in a, by means of a virtue of a certain name, Kel Shakai, a certain name, one of the divine names. But Shmi Hashem, but my divine name of essence I never revealed to them. What does this mean? <coughs> Again, it's a, an endless subject, truly an endless subject, but there are many divine names. You're familiar with that, right? The Torah uses many names of the divine. In fact, the Ramban says the whole Torah is names of Hashem. But there are specific names that are used, each one conveying a different emanation, as it were, of, of his being. There's one name that is above and beyond all emanations and all applications in the world, and that is the, the divine name of essence, what we call Yudke Vavke, right? Those four letters that we never pronounce. That is the name of Hashem, as it were, himself. It's not the name of a midder. It's not the name of an attribute. All the other names are names of attributes, right? Name Adnus, for example. Aleph, Dalet, Nun, right? Adoy, that name. That means that he's the master of the world. That's, that name describes a Kabbalistic transition from his essence into mastery over the world. There's another name, name Elohim. That's the name of justice or din. He judges his world, right? Or Kabbalistically, it means his manifestation in nature. The word Elohim adds up numerically to the same as the Hebrew word Hateva, which means nature. It's the force behind nature. Each name, right? Shakai, for example, that name means She'amal Elohim Odai. He said enough. Stop. When the world began to be created, it began to spread at an infinite speed. Ache Garbem Tlashem, as it were, yelled at the world and said, Die, stop. And when he said stop, it froze at the current, at its present size. Whatever that means. Each name has a different meaning. But the name Yudke Vavke, that name, is beyond the world. That's incidentally why we never pronounce it. Why do we never say that name? You know, we never say that name, right? Correct? We say other names when we mean that name. For example, we say Baruch, Ata, and instead of saying Yudkevake, we say Adoi, we say that name. But if you look in a Siddur, that's not the name you mean. It's not the name you mean. The name you mean is Yudkevake. But you can't say that name. Why can't you say it? So the simple, the child, the, the childlike, or the, 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 the simple interpretation is too holy to be said. But what that means in depth is cannot be said in the world. It's a name that transcends the world. If you would say it in the world, you would be shrinking it to a finite dimension. It can't be said by a finite mouth. It cannot be manifest in the world. It's beyond the world. Your mind cannot grasp that. Your mind can focus on that name. So what we do is, the mouth says the name that the mouth can say, namely, Aleph Dalad Nunyut, but the mind pictures and holds that name which the mouth cannot say. And of course, the Kabbalistic work is to mesh the two together. You ever look in a Sephardi Siddur, for example? In a Sephardi Siddur, the convention is to print the name Yud K Vav, and after the last Hey, underneath it, Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, to show that that name brings down the higher name. But the other ways of doing it as well, because the eye should be seeing, or the mind should be seeing, 
the name Yudke Vavke, but the mouth should be pronouncing the name that can be said in the world. And the work of the heart is to unify the two, that this in fact is that. That name transcends the world. So Hashem said to Moses, this exodus, this process of leaving Egypt will be a revelation of that name. Your forefathers never saw that name. They knew, of course, that, that it was, that it existed, but they never had a revelation of it. Right? What does this mean? It means, of course, an endless, an endless discussion. But in terms of miracles, let me try to, try to bring that out. What is the nature of a miracle? Again, this is a very, very abstract and, and, and very hard to put this into words. Okay? But it's tar- so let's do our best. What is, the, what is the difference between a miracle? We're talking about a revealed miracle that is not performed with Hashem's name, that name, and a revealed miracle which we began to see at Sinai that is performed with that name. And the answer is this. The type of miracles that were manifest before were miracles that's called Shidud HaTeva. Shidud, that means, I don't know how you translate that, but it means, it means the abrogation or the setting aside of nature. Right? Where a natural thing doesn't happen because it's blocked. The higher level of miracle is where nature operates and yet the miracle takes place. But let me explain. For example, you remember that Avram and Abraham was thrown into a fire. Nimrod threw him into a fire. Right? And in the fire, miraculously, he survived. So the sources that talk about it say, you know why he survived? Because there was a force that stopped the fire from burning him. Why? Because either somehow it was kept away from him, or somehow he was made into a shielded material that doesn't burn. Now, is that miraculous? Absolutely. But it's a lower order of miracle. There's a higher type of miracle where a person is thrown into a fire and he does not become invulnerable to the fire and the fire does not become cooled and it burns and is burnable and it still doesn't burn him. Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, for example, the three of them were thrown into a, f- in a furnace in a later generation and there the sources say that there was no cooling of the fire or protecting of the people. It was a fire and they were vulnerable and they didn't burn anyway. You're talking about a revelation of a miracle where two opposite things coexist in complete and utter impossible paradox, and yet they both exist. Perhaps I give you an example like this. The classic example is that after we left Egypt, and we witnessed those types of miracles, and eventually we built the Mishkan, you know, the sanctuary, right? The, the tab of the Mishkan. Inside the Mishkan was an ark, the Aroin. The ark was placed in the Kurdish Kodoshim, the Holy of Holies. Now, it had a certain measurement. The, the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodoshim, is built to very exacting specifications. The Oron is also built to very exacting specifications. And yet it occupied no space. What's called Oron Enominamida, it occupied no space. Meaning, if you measure from one wall to the other of the, of the Kodesh Kodoshim, you got a certain measurement. If you then measure from the wall to the edge of the Oron and from the other edge to the wall, you got the same measurement. It fitted in without taking up space. That is not one natural object being blocked from interaction with another one. That is two impossible things. We're going to put it to you this way. The first level of miracle would be if somehow you put it in and the structure expanded. Or the object that you put in somehow shrank. Miraculously, shrank. That's the first kind of miracle. That definitely did not happen. Because if the Kodesh Kodoshim expanded, it would be invalid in its measurements. And if the orange shrank, it would also be invalid in its measurements. And therefore what happened was it retained its measurements, the room retained its measurements, and neither occupied. That's called, do you understand, that is a, it's very immature to think. Let's go, what happened in Egypt, the first miracle, water turned to blood. What that means in Kabbalistic jargon and Kabbalistic, is an amazing, amazing, amazing thing what that means. You see, you think water became blood, okay, impressive, you know, nice. 
But you know what it means in the source? You know, some, some sources say that, you know, we say on the Seder, there will be Kibber, there will be Taufun, there will be Lazar ben Azariah, they're all sitting in B'nai Brak, talking about the miracles of the Exodus, all night, until the, their students came and told them that it was dawn, time for Shema, right? To say the Shema. What were they talking about all night? What were they talking about, the miracles of the Exodus? The Kabbalistic commentaries say, they were talking about Kabbalistic... When, when we say the water became blood, what were they talking about? What must be happening in the spiritual worlds, that water can become... Water is water, not because it's water, but because there's spiritual energies in the higher worlds that emanate into the physical world as water. Blood is blood, not because it happens to be blood, but because the energies in the spiritual world that manifest that way. What must have been happening in the root for water to become blood? Yeah, they were living in that world. One of, the, one of the Kabbalistic sources also indicates, why did the students have to come and tell them that the morning had arrived and it was time to say Shema? They didn't notice? The answer is no, they didn't notice. But you know why? Because in the night they were inhabiting that night, it was light. The night of going out of Egypt is a night that is not a night. Right? It's not day and it's not night. They were living in a space of a different kind of a light. When the dawn broke that day, it made no difference. It's childish to think that when the water of the Nile became blood, you know, it says that the Jews, the Jews had water, the Egyptians had blood. So the Egyptians tried to get water. So how did they get water? They would try to take a cup from which a Jew was drinking, because when the Jew drank it was water, and they would quickly try to drink from the cup. But of course, when they drank it was blood. That's what happened. So it's childish to think that in the Jew's mouth it was water, but it turned to blood in the Egyptian's mouth. <coughs> That would be a first order revealed miracle. But it's incorrect. What they experienced then was a second order revealed miracle. Do you know what that means? That it was blood and water at the same time. It wasn't blood for the, in the Egyptian's mouth and water in the Jew's mouth. It was one and the same material but for the Jew water and for the Egyptian blood. Is that logical? Absolutely not. That's not even logical in miracles. <coughs> you got here a paradox. Because Hashem's name, the Yudke Vavke, you have to understand this. The name Yudke Vavke is the name of paradox. It is the name of paradox. It's the name where two opposite things coexist without destroying each other. After all, what is that name? It's the name of four letters. Four specific letters. So how can it be the name of essence of everything? How can we say Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, He is one? One homogeneous, infinite, intense white light. So how can it have four separate letters? How can it be the root of all things that are particulate and differentiated in the world and still be one? answer is, we don't know. We can say it, but we can't grasp it. It is the root of all paradox. It's the root of all those things where two things are one thing and yet two. You know, a beautiful illustration of this for those who have thought about these things. Do you know that if you, if you read the sources, they say that every name is an, is, is a, an attribute. Elohim is din, like we said. Right? Adnus means something else. Shaka means something else. Svakos means the name that indicates when Hashem does war with the enemies, enemies of the Jewish people. Right? Which is the midah? Listen, which is the midah? What is the characteristic of Hashem that the divine name Yud Vavke indicates? You'll often find it said it's Midas Rachamim. Ever heard that before? Rachamim means, well, in a very, very crude translation, it means a certain working of kindliness or mercy, let's say. But of course, it doesn't really mean that. What Rachamim really means is the impossible combination of Din and Chesed. Din and Chesed means Chesed means an unlimited outpouring, and Din means a complete limitation. Obviously, two complete opposites, right? Rachamim means how they are woven together, which is an impossibility. Din means strict justice. Chesed means leniency. How can you possibly mix 
leniency with strict justice. You can't do that. As soon as you put any leniency, it's not justice anymore. How can you still call it din? Do you remember how the world was created? Hashem wanted to create a world with din, strict letter of the law, so that it could not exist. He got up and he combined with the din the attribute of mercy. But you can't, you can't do that. As soon as you combine something that is not strict law, then it's not... Again, you can't have, 90, you can't have 99% strict exactitude and 1% leniency. You can't do that. There's not exactitude anymore. It doesn't matter how much off it is. That name does not mean the name of one particular attribute. It means the name of all things being different and yet there being one, which is beyond our understanding. When we say Hashem Hashem Echad, we mean He is one, and all things are that oneness. There isn't anything else. The moment when you say that word one, Echad, you mean that there's nothing else, not even you. Not even the one who's saying that at that moment. That's the intensity of the oneness. Where all things that are manifest are in fact one thing. And that name was revealed when we went out of Egypt. That name, that means the miracles, the order, the class of miracles that began to transpire when we left Egypt were miracles of that order. That had never been seen before. What had been seen before was where nature was ripped apart, nature was, the forces underlying nature were revealed. All those things had happened. People thrown to fire, not burnt, but by a different mechanism. What we saw when we left Egypt was a direct experience, direct connection with that source in which many things are all one thing. Let's summarize and see what we, what we learned this evening. We learned that the Pesach Seder is a time for the recounting of miracles. And that's really what it is in essence. The Sinai experience is something else to talk about that the first time. But the going out of Egypt, of course it culminated in Sinai. And of course the Sinai awareness we take with us into the whole of the natural world, like we said. But the purpose of the Exodus, the purpose of telling the story of going out of Egypt, is that, is that in the natural world, we reached a level of transcendence. That's what it is. What level of transcendence? The source itself. We began a relationship. We began the process, the pathway, that led from one type of revelation, perceiving in the natural world, began many, many centuries, long time before. A young man called Avram Avinu, Abraham, a little child, he looked at nature and saw that this is not natural, without anyone to reveal it to him or to teach him. He saw that this is not self-explanatory. This thing cannot generate itself. There must be a hand that moves it. And gradually he saw more until finally he actually saw miraculous manifestations. But he never merited to see these kinds of miracles because it wasn't yet the Jewish people. And when the move to Sinai began and we left Egypt, right? Egypt means Mitzrayim, Metzar Yam, that which squeezes the 50th. The 50th means the ultimate transcendence, 50th level. 49 levels of impurity, squeezing the 50th. When that was broken, right? We left that. We left Egypt. And we moved in that 49-step process that led to Sinai, where we had actually a personal experience of that source. And that is what we recount. And therefore, the work of the Pesach Seder, of course, is to sit there and not simply tell the children that we became a political entity, we achieved a nationhood and a, and a, a national status and a, eventually a country. That's all very important, but it's only the substrate. It's like talking about a body without talking about the person inside. Right? If you talk to, if you tell your, tell your children about a great person, one of their great people they never met, a grandparent whom they never married to meet, and you describe that person with, in terms of great admiration, and all you talk about is what their body looked like, what could be more ridiculous? What could be more ridiculous? The body's only the vehicle. Right? The essence is the person inside. That's what's important, how they behaved. What kind of. Yeah. And therefore, when you tell your children we went out of Egypt, to tell them that we were enslaved, and it was bitter, and that we were freed, and we became a nation, that's the body of the story. 
But the Nisham of the story is that it was miraculous. That's the soul. That's the soul. That means there was clear revelation that it wasn't natural, it wasn't normal, it was something else. And how something else? Not even normal miracles. But abnormal miracles. Miracles within miracles. Right? Which means, as opposed to simply being able to conclude or infer or deduce that there was something behind the scenes, this was a process where we actually came to meet that being who's behind the scenes. Come on,